morning. The reading of God's word this morning comes from John 3, 1 through 21. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, but no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it, is made, so that may, it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be, be to God. God. I'm going to do something today that I haven't done in a long time. So I want to invite all the little ones, the first grade and under kids, y'all go for children's worship and nursery usually. I want you to come down here and have a meeting with me first. And if any of the other kids want to come down as well, that's fine. So come on down. I'm going to sit in my robe. Let's see how this works, kids. Have a seat. Have a seat. I know we hadn't done this in a while. Some of you are confused. You've never seen me do this before. I feel like we're missing some maybe they've just gotten older since i've done it last it happens oh it's okay darling come on all right abby thanks thanks for setting the standard of excellence among the older older children so what color am i wearing on my stole today what color is this there is some gold but what's the main color white but i want you to look here what color is this purple So who knows why we use purple in worship? Anybody know? It's for a specific season. Abby? It does represent royalty. That's a great answer. That is completely true. But why this season? What is it about 
this season of the year that reminds us of royalty? Isaac? Well, we're getting close to Easter, but before Easter, Jesus dies, doesn't he? This is the season of Lent, when we remember the suffering of Jesus. And it was through his suffering that he became seated on the throne next to his father, right? It's through his suffering that Jesus won the battle against our sin. But I'm not wearing purple, am I? I'm wearing white. Does anyone know why I'm wearing white today? I want you to repeat this word after me. It's a big, big word. Can you do it? All right, here we go. Say this word. Annunciation. Annunciation. Parents, y'all can say it too. Let's all say it together. Annunciation. Great. So Annunciation is in the middle of Lent. It's another special church holiday. And this was the day that Gabriel appeared to Mary to tell her what? That she was going to have a baby. That's right. An angel appeared to Mary and told her she was going to have a baby. Now, this was surprising for two reasons. Number one, she wasn't married. But number two, this was a special baby. Who is this baby going to be? It's going to be God. Jesus. So she came, the, the angel came and told Mary she was going to have baby Jesus. Let me ask you, have you ever done something bad? Yeah, yeah, we all do bad things. We're ever mean to people. May we say a bad word. We, do, we disobey our parents, right? Did Jesus ever do any of those things? No. You know, the Bible verse Mr. Warren said, that which is born of flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus was different from us when he was born. When we're born, we have sins. And guess what, kids? You need to be forgiven of your sins. Do you know how how we can have forgiveness of sins? It's not by doing good things. It's not by going to church. It's not by being baptized or taking communion. The way you can be forgiven forgiven of the bad things you've done is the same way I can be forgiven. It's believing in Jesus. This one that was born of Mary. And kids, I want you to hear from me, your pastor, because I love you. That you need to believe in Jesus. Even though you've done bad things, you can be forgiven of your sins. And there's only one way. It's trusting him. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for these little ones. We love them so much. And that's why we want them to know about Jesus. The one born of Mary the one who never sinned like we do, and the one who died on the cross for us. So, Lord, I want to pray for every one of these little ones sitting here. I want to pray for everyone sitting here today, whether they're grown-ups or kids, that all of us would trust in Jesus so our sins could be forgiven. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, little ones, thanks for meeting with me. Y'all go have fun in children's worship, in nursery. And now I'm going to try to stand up in a robe without stepping on the edge of it. There's nothing formal about that. Hey, everybody. So last week, we started in John chapter 3, and we began by digging deep into the theology of this uh, very uh, well-known chapter in the New Testament. But the goal was to take the theology that we learned last week, and then apply it widely across the spectrum of everyone here in this space. And what was the deep theological truth that we saw in John chapter 3 last week? It was this. Whether a person believes in Jesus or not is rooted in three things. Their nature, their affections, and their motives. 
First of all, we talked about nature, that every human being is born spiritually dead, that we are left into ourselves, bound to sin, uh, to be selfish. And we can see this. We can see it in ourselves. We can see it in the world we live in. And God has to do something to make that dead man alive. Something has to change in our nature. The Holy Spirit has to regenerate us. About our affections. Something has to change in our loves. So we have to experience the love of God in such a way that knowing him and knowing his love and being in relationship with him, that that becomes more meaningful, powerful, and beautiful to us than the satisfaction of sin. Something has to change in us so that our affections change. We want to know him and to love him and to experience his love more than we want the the joys of sin. That's the second thing that has to change in us. And the third is something about our motives has to change. Nobody's going to come to God. Nobody's going to come to Jesus if they're afraid of shame. Because step one, like I just told the kids, you have sin and you need to be forgiven. Every one of us has to get to the point where we're honest with ourselves enough that we can just come out in front of everybody and say, I'm jacked up. I'm messed up. I am bankrupt on my own. And if you're afraid of saying that, you're never going to come to Jesus for fear of being exposed. So something in our motives, that self-protection, self-provision has to change before we're ever going to believe in Jesus. So that was last week. We dove into some deep theological truths about our nature, our affections, and our motives. But today, we're going to go wide, and we're going to try to apply that across the spectrum of everyone here. So with that in mind, if you'd like to look in the back of your worship guide, there's space where you can take notes. We're going to begin with a question. So here's the first blank in your worship guide. Which character in John chapter 3 best resembles me? Which character in John chapter 3 best resembles me? The Pharisees and leaders who stayed behind? Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus? Or John, the author of this narrative, the one who believed very much in Jesus? So which character in John chapter 3 best resembles you? That's what I want you to be pondering this morning. I want you to see something in this chapter that intrigues me. First of all, the gospel according to John, which I've never studied academically until this sermon series, is really masterfully written. And I see something fascinating about John chapter 3 when you read it in light of John chapter 1. John, as he's writing this chapter, is thinking about what he wrote back in chapter 1. So in John chapter 1, John the Apostle, the disciple of Jesus, described Jesus in this way. Look in your worship guide. I've got it printed there for you. He said, the true light, that's how he describes Jesus, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He came to his own. And his own people did not receive him. So John says Jesus came into the world as light, but even his own people, the Jews, did not receive him. I mean, if you'd expect anyone to receive Jesus, you'd expect it to be his own people, but they don't. Well, that theme from John chapter 1 of the rejected light is developed further at the end of chapter 3. And some commentators even argue, I think convincingly, that John three sixteen through 21 are not the words of Jesus. There's no quotation marks in Greek, so you kind of have to make a judgment call as to where Jesus stops speaking and John the Apostle starts speaking. And I, I actually think this might be John continue, uh, continuing to kind of editorialize 
uh, on this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. Regardless of where you land on that, let's look at what the text says. Look in verse 19. It says, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's what blows my mind, and this is one of the reasons why I think this is John speaking and not Jesus. He's describing the characters in the story. Who so loved their deeds of darkness that they did not come to Jesus? Of those three characters. Thank you. Yes, right. The Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews, they did not come to Jesus. Who does come to Jesus, though? Nicodemus and John, kind of the unstated character in the story. So the Pharisees, who were the religious conservatives of their day, the rulers of the Jews, they don't come to Jesus. They who did wicked things loved their deeds of darkness. They didn't come to the light. Why? Because if they'd come to the light, their deeds would have been exposed, and they didn't want that. But Nicodemus, he did come to the light, but at what time of day? At nighttime. He's still under the dark of night. So some exposure is okay, but not too much. And when he confronts the light of the world, what does the light expose in him? Something about his nature, affections, and motives, that he's spiritually dead. That even though he's a religious conservative and a leader of the Jews, that he's condemned. But here's the question I've got. Even though Nicodemus doesn't clearly believe in Jesus in chapter 3, what brought him here? There's something different about him from the two groups that he's a part of, the Pharisees and the rulers of Israel. Something. Though his deeds were evil, something urged him to leave his brethren in darkness and to come to this one called Jesus. And what I think we're seeing in Nicodemus is a nature being changed. Affections being confronted. And motives somewhere in the middle. I don't think Nicodemus has received Jesus yet, but at least he's come to the light. And then, of course, we have our invisible character in the story, John, the author. He knows that Jesus is the light. Jesus is his joy. He knows the mercy of God. Jesus is his Lord. So which character are you? Are you the Pharisees and the leaders? Are you Nicodemus? Or are you John? We can answer that question by looking at your nature, your affections, and your motives. So let's each of us look at ourselves and ask some questions about these deep theological truths and how they apply to us. So first, let's ask a question about our nature. Here's your next blank. What is my spiritual vitality? What is my spiritual vitality? In other words, are you spiritually alive or are you spiritually dead? It's actually a very simple question to answer. And like we saw last week, we have no control over it. Why? Because you're either a dead person or you're alive. And a dead man can't do anything but, but stink. Let's look at verses 5 through 8. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What's Jesus saying? He says, when you are born of your mother, you're born one way, of the flesh. And you're like every other human being. Every human being, when they are born onto this planet, are born fallen, sinful, dead, and condemned by sin. They don't have a a saving relationship with God yet. They are not bound for heaven. He says, unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if your parents are Christian or not. Something has to change in your nature. You must be born of He says, water and the spirit. What does that mean to be born of the water and spirit? Now, a lot of folks, including our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, try to make this about water baptism. They think that when Jesus says be born of the water and spirit, that means that if you are baptized, you are receiving in that moment the life of the spirit. That if you're baptized in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then your sins are washed away. That stretches the words of this verse way beyond reasonability. I mean, first of all, Christian baptism wasn't even happening yet. So why would Jesus tell Nicodemus that if he wants to be born again, he has to have something that doesn't exist yet? That that doesn't seem to make sense to me. And in John chapter 4, as we're going to see in two weeks, Jesus talks at length with a Samaritan woman about how what the Holy Spirit does inside of us is like an ever springing up well of water. That the impact of the Spirit has some kind of water-like effect on us spiritually. Bottom line is, I don't think he's talking about baptism here. I think he's talking about the Spirit doing something inside of us. Here's what I think he's saying. If the Holy Spirit, who moves like the wind, we don't know where he's coming from, where he's going, we only see his effects. If the Holy Spirit wants to give you life He wants to wake you up from your spiritual death, that there is an internal change in you that affects you like water would. He cleanses you. How many of us live our days racked with guilt and shame because of things we've done days, weeks, years ago? This is what the Holy Spirit offers to do, to wash you of your shame, to wash you of your guilt, to give you relief of that, to soothe you like a cold glass of water on a hot day. Do you carry the burden of your sin? Do you feel like there's, you just couldn't do enough to overcome it and to justify yourself before God and others? Well, then you need to be born again. The Holy Spirit washes us and he soothes us internally. I think that's what he's talking about, an internal purification. Has God cleansed your conscience? Has he washed you of your guilt and shame? So if you, as you explore that question, uh, how's my spiritual vitality? Here's two questions I think are helpful. It's your next two blanks. First, has God's great love toward me freed me from the guilt and shame of past sin? That's the first aspect of it. And secondly, do I have an increasing displeasure with my own sin, followed by repentance that results in rest and joy? That's what I think is at the heart of this. Have I been washed in my guilt and shame? And do I have an increasing displeasure with my own sin, 
followed by repentance that results in rest and joy. If you look at your spiritual life, and really what you see is continual guilt, continual, continual shame. You just can't feel like you're moving forward. You can't get past it. And in fact, you love your sin and you really don't want to stop doing these things. You may not be born again. Spirit may not have given you new life yet. If that's how you feel, I've printed two scriptures in your worship guide for you to chew on today and in the days ahead. First is Isaiah 55. It says this, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? You feel like what you're doing is not working? Reject it. Come to Jesus empty-handed and say, change me. Take away my shame. Take away my guilt. Take away my love for sin. Help me to be free of this. We are deficient. We are bankrupt spiritually. So come to the one who has what you need. Here's the next scripture in your worship guide, 2 Corinthians 7. It says, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Jesus offers you everything. There's nothing you can do to get rid of your guilt, to get rid of your shame. You can try your best to be the best person on the planet. It's not going to fix how you feel inside. And for the record, feeling bad is not the key. Christianity is not about confessing your sins, beating yourself up about your sins, and resolving to be better. Because a dead man can't do anything. The answer, brothers and sisters, is to believe and repent. Believe the good news that God loves you in spite of your sins. That he has offered you forgiveness in the death and resurrection of Jesus. And to flee to him like a thirsty man who needs water. Like a hungry woman who is desperate for food. And to pursue that Christ, that Jesus, that God with your whole life. So thirsty man, come to the water and drink. Hungry woman, boy, girl, come to Jesus and find the food that you need. Stop spending your energy trying to be good enough for God. Trying to overcome all your bad works with enough good works. That grief leads to death. You'll spend yourself on what is not bread or water. Instead, simply believe the promise that God loves you. Because of the cross of Christ alone. Because of his life of obedience and his death on the cross. So have you been made alive? Have you been set free from your guilt and shame? Have you found rest and joy in Christ? Have you believed? If you, like Nicodemus, are still dead in your sins, come to Jesus. And find new life in him. That's your nature. What about your affections? Here's another question to ask yourself. It's next blank in your worship guide. What do I love so much that I'm unwilling to part with it? What do I love so much that I'm unwilling to part with it? Because this is the challenge of Jesus. Believing in Jesus also means allegiance to Jesus because Jesus is Lord. The whole idea, like the whole notion that God became a man was that here is the greatest among men. 
He has come to be the king, not just of Israel, but of the whole world. So if you believe his message, you're also saying he's in charge of me completely. That's the whole claim. He's the king. So you can't believe the message of Jesus as savior without kneeling before him as Lord. But he, he doesn't want cold, indifferent obedience. What does he want really of us? What were you made for? Love. Love. Look at this text in your worship guide from Luke chapter 14. It says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Therefore, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So that's the question. What do you love so much that you're unwilling to part with it? Jesus wants you to renounce that thing, that person, that relationship, that position, that honor, that kingdom, that pleasure. That good thing or bad thing, everything must go. Our love for and our commitment to Jesus must be greater than our love for and commitment to everything and everyone else. So for some of you, following Jesus will mean ending a relationship. For some of you, following Jesus may mean quitting a job. For some of you, following Jesus may mean risking everything, perhaps even your life and the life of your family, to be faithful to Jesus. It's what the disciples had to do. It's what our missionaries do on a daily basis. Will you love Jesus that much that he comes before everything? At this point in John chapter (laughs) 3, the Pharisees would, of course, say no. They kill Jesus later in the story, for the record. Even Nicodemus, at this point, would say no. He's got a lot of things that he doesn't want to give up. But what about you? We all have affections, things that we love that are disordered. Me too. Here's your next blank. We all have things that we love more than we love Jesus. Are you aware of that? And are you repenting? John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. God's Position toward us, even though we are often traitorous enemies of God, is to love us. And so he is inviting us always to love. So the life of a Christian is constantly looking at ourselves and saying, is there anything I love more than Jesus? And seeking to love him more. I regularly ask God with trembling to help me love Jesus more than I love Megan. More than I love my kids. That he would help me to love Jesus more than I love you and certainly more than I love myself. So that if I had to choose between Christ and all these things, I would love him first. This is what missionaries in closed countries have to do. This is what the disciples had to do. These guys, most of them went to their death. And every one of us, our affections, our hearts are disordered. So the question is, are we aware of that? And are we repenting? A Christian is not a perfect person. A Christian is a repenting person. Something who, though tempted by sin's delights, is continually going back to a God who loves us because we know that his love, 
that he himself is more beautiful and good and enjoyable than any other good thing on this planet. Do you see that happening in your life? That's the question we're getting at with the second one. Do you see in your heart this cognizance of, yes, I know that there are things that I love more than I ought to, that I I need to love Jesus more, that I want to love Jesus more. Do you feel that tension in your life? If you do, you're born again. (laughs) His love is calling you to love him more. But last What about your motives? Here's a final question to ask ourselves to help us see, have we been born again? Have I believed in Jesus? Your next blank is your motives. How do I want to protect myself? How do I want to protect myself? Look at verse 20 in our text. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What does Jesus say about the the, the unregenerate person in verse 20? He doesn't want his shame exposed. To come to Jesus means confessing my deep brokenness, my shame, my failure. To come to Jesus is a confession of spiritual bankruptness that I am undone. But, here's your next blank. The unbelieving person will be kept from Jesus by a sense of self-protection. Self-protection will keep us from Jesus. None of us wants to feel shame. We don't like the the exposure. We don't like the sense of being caught. And the result is we find it hard to confess our deep depravity and failure. When you sin against your spouse, you probably don't want to say, I was wrong. (laughs) Here's what I did that was wrong. And I'm sorry. It's, It's painful to be vulnerable with each other, to confess our failure. And the same is in our relationship with God. But on the flip side of that coin, most of us feel like we need to, instead of confessing our sins, we feel like we need to prove ourselves. We need to prove ourselves to God. We need to prove ourselves to other people. Or we need to prove ourselves to ourselves. The unbelieving person really just wants to protect the reputation. So they don't want to come to Jesus. But the real question is, what do you think Jesus is going to do if you confess your brokenness to him? If you're concerned about your shame, you got to get over that. (laughs) You're messed up. You're just as messed up as me or anybody else. So trust Jesus to take care of you. Lose face. Confess your sins and find him to be amazing. What does he promise to sinners like you and me? That he'll love us. That he'll protect us. That he'll forgive us. That he'll give us life even after death. So don't hesitate from coming to Jesus out of a sense of self-protection. No, come to the one who can actually protect you and save you. Here's your next blank. The regenerate person, the saved person, has no need for self-protection or self-provision. If you're a Christian, you have no need to protect yourself or to provide for yourself. Why? Because we realize that we are under the care of a powerful and loving God. What motivated you to come here today? To come here to the presence of Jesus. Did you come here to prove something to God? Did you come here to prove something to yourself? Did you come to prove something to somebody else? Or did you come here to rest from your labor? Did you come here to rest 
from your work of self-provision and self-protection throughout the week. You know, this is why we rest on the Sabbath. You don't deserve a day off. That's not why we do the Sabbath. It's not like you've worked your butt off for six days. You deserve it. Kick back and enjoy. No, that's not why we have the Sabbath. Our work, what you do six days a week to provide for yourself and to protect yourself, actually does nothing for you. That's why we rest on the Sabbath. To remember that our work does absolutely nothing. And if you think it does, you've been believing your own press. Look again in your worship guide, Psalm 127. This is one we probably could all use to memorize. It says this, Unless Yahweh builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless Yahweh watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. How many of us have worked our hardest, have employed every last ounce of our energy to a project, to a person, to a thing, only to watch it fizzle out and become nothing? Not, not, it's not even not profitable, but it ended up costing us time, money, and energy. How much of our work has been utterly fruitless and vain? And how many times have we put in just like a, a paltry amount of effort and boop, it just works? <laughs> it pays off. Why is that? Because it is God. It is always God who gives us good things from our work. If the Lord doesn't build the house, the, the weary builders toil in vain. If he doesn't protect the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. These aren't lazy dudes. They're working their butts off. But if God shows up, that's when we get what we need. He is the one who provides for us. He is the one who protects us. So the question is, are you living in this mode that I have to provide for me? I have to protect me. That motive may show you something about your spiritual state. Friends, stop believing in yourselves. Stop it. Kids, uh, who here watches Ninjago? Anybody watch Ninjago? Yeah? Yeah? Uh, my kids were watching Ninjago the other day. Abby shrugged. She's off of Ninjago. She's too old for that now. My kids were watching Ninjago the other day, and um, if you don't know what it is, don't worry. It's not good, um, in my opinion. Uh, my kids were watching Ninjago the other day, and it's at the climax of this episode, and the, this, the characters are in this moment of great tension, and this wise old character walks forward, and she says, what you need to do is believe in yourself. If you'll believe in yourself, everything will work out. And I yelled across the house, that's a lie, kids. And I went in and I paused it. I said, that's a lie. Believing in yourself is not <clears throat> the answer. Believing in yourself, if I just trust my heart and do what I think is best, that usually gets me nowhere good. Don't believe in yourself. Believe in the provision and protection of a God who has all resources and all power at his disposal, and in submission to him and in trust to him, we move forward. I don't care who you are. If you're a, a Pharisee, if you're a Nicodemus, if you're John, the message for all of us is the same. Believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins, repent of your way of living, and draw near to the God who can save you. If you will trust Christ and repent, 
You'll not only see the kingdom of God, you will enter it. You will not only live forever, but you will experience kingdom life transforming you now. So believe in Jesus. Do you know how Nicodemus' story ends? We see the beginning here in John chapter 3. But we're going to see Nicodemus two more times in John's gospel. In chapter 7, Nicodemus defends Jesus in front of the other Pharisees. He goes to bat for Jesus and stands out as different from the others. He's more than just interested now. He's willing to, to lose face a little bit in front of his peers. But in John chapter 19, after Jesus has died, this is like the worst part in the story. 11 of the 12 disciples have run away in terror. We read this. Look in your worship guide. It says, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. It's expensive. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. When all of Jesus' other disciples had abandoned him, except for John, the author of the book, he's the one disciple who hung with Jesus, whom does John find burying Jesus? Nicodemus. If you're here and you're not sold on Jesus yet, you haven't made a profession of faith, you haven't given your life to Jesus, you haven't made him the king of your life, you're not too far gone. You came to Jesus today. You came to this place to hear of Jesus and to worship Jesus. And you're still under condemnation. You must be born again. But like Nicodemus, you can not only be forgiven and saved, you can become a part of Jesus' great story. You're here for a reason. The Holy Spirit did something. We don't know what brought Nicodemus to Jesus on this night, and I don't know what he did to bring, what God did to bring you here, but the Holy Spirit has done something to have you here in this moment. So hear me clearly. Jesus has a part for every one of you to play in his redemption of the world. So will you come to Jesus? Will you reject your life, your plans, your agenda? Will you consider it nothing in contrast to a life of following Jesus? Nicodemus risked it all. The prestige, the position, the approval of the religious elites. And he associated himself with a dead man in hope that eternal life was around the corner. He stepped into shame, into weakness, into degradation, into uncleanness, because there in the death of Jesus, he found the love and power of God. Will you do the same? Will you leave it all behind to trust Jesus and to follow him with your whole life? I want to encourage you. Um, I said this last week. Statistically, there are people here 
gone to church their whole lives, done this church thing. Maybe you've been baptized. Maybe you took communion today. But you walk out these doors and, and, and Jesus has no impact in your life. You're not living life in light of his saving work and his lordship. I grew up in a tradition where, I told JJ this the other night, I used to lay in bed at night as a kid terrified of hell because I heard about hell so much. beat into my little skull. And when I believed in Jesus at first, it was out of abject fear. And it's not my intent to do that to you. Hell's real. When he talks about condemnation, that's what he's talking about. But I wouldn't be doing my job, not as a pastor, but as your friend, if I didn't tell you, you need to believe in Jesus. And if you haven't done it, today could be the day.